0: Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the 443 Security Simplified Podcast. I'm your guest host today, Corey Nockreiner, and joining me today is another guest.
1: I'm Trevor Collins, a security engineer and second guest host.
0: Yeah, and as you can probably tell, I'm covering the main hosting duties because Mark is out for one more week, but you can look forward to him returning next week. Today's episode is mostly designed to focus on giving some quick highlights to our Q2 WatchGuard Internet Security Report. That said, we wanted to combine some news since there's a lot of interesting things happening. So in the news section, we'll also have a special uh, local Australian IT and security expert give us some updates on the Optus breach. We'll cover the latest on the Uber CSO trial, and we'll also cover a set of zero-day exchange vulnerabilities that still haven't been patched. So strap on your rocket pack and let's blast on in. Okay, everybody, let's go ahead and jump into the first section of today's podcast, which is where we're going to cover WatchGuard's Q2 or the second quarter 2020 internet security report. Uh, Before we jump into that, uh, you will probably hear a new voice on this segment because as you know, Mark is out this week. uh, Joining me today, and you might see him as well if you actually watch this on YouTube. By the way, if you haven't noticed, if you're an audio listener, be sure to check out WatchGuard's YouTube where you can watch our podcast as well. But joining me is Trevor Collins, one of our security engineers. Hey, Trevor, nice to have you. Hey,
1: Corey. Thank you for having me. I yeah. am a security engineer, and hopefully I can give you a little bit more details on the uh, malware section as, as I'm primary writing that, and I uh, do a lot of the data uh, connections and, and the reports for the malware, quarterly malware reports. Yeah,
0: yeah. Besides being a great analyst on the CISO, my team, uh, and doing all, you know, we do a lot of writing for Secplicity, our internet security report, but you're key in our instant, our, our computer security instant response team. You know, uh, my, my group manages WatchGuard's security operations center, including all the tools we use to monitor stuff. And Trevor is like a, a key person in setting that up, making sure the data is running and monitoring that. But as a writer of the Internet Security Report, he's a great replacement while Mark is out to help us talk about what happened. Uh, For new listeners, every quarter WatchGuard releases what we call our Internet Security Report. In the highest level, this is basically a threat intelligence report based on all the quantifiable data we get from all our products, whether they be network security products, endpoint security products, and so on. And the point is simply to kind of see what attackers are doing in a quantifiable way by monitoring Actual attacks out there so that we can kind of give you an idea of what new attacks or what changes and evolutions to attacks are happening so that you can adjust your defenses in the future, which is why we share it every month. Uh, this month, since we want to also share some new security news in this podcast too, we're going to go through some of the highlights. So know you can get all of these details in our security report. Uh, you can find it by going to secplicity.org and checking out the threat research, or you can also find it on WatchGuard's pages if you look up internet security reports. But first, we're going to dive into a lot of details in different sections, but to share the top highlights, the good news is the volume of threats we saw in Q2 is down pretty much everywhere, whether it's endpoint-based malware, network-based malware detection, or network attacks, you know, network exploits and IPS signatures, the pure volume of these threats that we're blocking is down, suggesting the volume of attacks is down that said, I think there's some signs you hear about as me and Trevor talk about it, that that doesn't mean the sophistication or the level of threat is down. At the very least, malware is continuing to be evasive. Uh, One of the highlights that Trevor will cover is a lot of malware is trying to evade detection using encrypted connections. And we'll talk about that percentage later. Also, some interesting things we'll cover is we've SCADA, if you haven't heard of that acronym, stands for Supervisory Control and Data Acquisition and they're tools that usually manufacturing, industrial control and critical infrastructure use to kind of monitor those operational technologies. Uh, we saw a particular SCADA threat in our network attack section. We also saw a lot of document threats. But rather than sharing all of this, the, the highlights, let's dive into some of the details. So the first section we'll cover that we that's in the report is something we call the firebox feed section. And this section covers the attacks we see from our network security gear. So we sell a firebox and network security services to protect you, and everything here is from the network security services as opposed to endpoint stuff. And with that, the first thing we cover is malware. So Trevor, why don't I just hand it off to you to talk about some of the malware highlights from Q2? Sure.
1: So the malware, which, as Corey mentioned, which is Part of the Firebox, the physical Fireboxes that are going to be scanning for the traffic. And so these devices are going to be sending us reports that is entailing any type of file that is incoming or just basically caught by a proxy on the Firebox. And so some of the highlights here is that the total malware...
0: I guess it might be worth to uh, get to total malware, but it might be worth separating the different, we have different engines to catch malware. So total malware, you're going to combine the total results, but I think you have some details about uh, some of the different types of ways we catch malware with the Firebox.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And, and each each uh, service that is running on the Firebox is going to catch different types of malwares and, and I'll, I'm Gonna try and explain some of this, and you know, and, and as quickly as I can while while I go down this. But to total malware that we see is down actually fifteen point seven percent, and that is the GAV uh, gateway antivirus, which is our basic signature-based malware detection. It's kind of the the old school malware detection that'll just quickly, you know. Instantly be able to detect whether it's malware or whether it's okay to pass on to the next level. And it's just
0: pattern based. So the the downside, the reason we call sign, uh, GAV and signature based legacy is, it's it's detection that relies on us already knowing something is bad. So it's not as good at catching brand new malware.
1: Absolutely. And and the the upside of it though as well is it's very quick, and so and it's just because of these detections we can. Process a significant load on a firebox without loading it down. Uh, APT, um, and so that the total GAV by itself um, is eleven point seven million, and. Uh, and that's wow. that's
0: how many detections we had on Fireboxes. So of all the Fireboxes we get data from, uh, there were 11.7 million detections. I will say just for, for new listeners, that does not represent all our customers. The, all the data we get from Firebox Feed is opt-in. I think there's around 70,000 Fireboxes now that are, are sharing data with us, but that's still actually a fraction of active customers, which is in the many hundreds of thousands. Uh, And on top of that, non-active customers that still have a box. So so do you know these numbers, even though 11.7 million is large, it actually just represents a small portion of customers that share this data. We encourage you if you're a Firebox customer to share this data with us because it it gives us great threat intelligence that we can adjust our security to. So sorry to have interrupted, uh, but that was Gateway antivirus has about 11.7 million detections, right?
1: Yes so, so gateway has 11.7 million and you were right on on, on the uh, number of fireboxes that we have reporting just over 70,000 um, and then we have the APT blocker and APT blocker works by uh, being able to individually scan and sandbox in a safe environment to each individual malware and it, once we have once that devices scanned in the sandbox and to be able to really identify what we this program is meant to do meant to do we yeah then, then and we, it's not
0: necessarily do it malware project. right so what what happens with this behavioral protection is malware can be it can be a document it can be an executable and of course it goes through our signature protection to very quickly say oh, this executable, I have no bad signature for it. So that doesn't mean it's not malware, that just means it's not malware we've seen before. But that executable could still be goodware, right? It could be just a normal program you're downloading. So do know we submit all executables and documents. It's not just malware because we don't know yet, but APT blocker is where we submit any unknown suspicious document or executable for the sandboxing behavioral analysis Trevor was talking about. And that's where we we make the decision if it's good or bad,
1: right? And we we that's a good point. We don't know if it's malware to begin with. So so the process essentially is it goes through the GAV, and then it, and it goes through our that engine, and then if it doesn't detect if it's that that program is malware, then we send it through APT blocker. If that program also doesn't detect that it's malware, then we know it's good, and we you can it'll allow it through the perimeter firebox. So that's how that that's how those two services work together. Um, So what we then look at is for the fireboxes that have APT blocker enabled, because not all fireboxes do have them enabled, though we encourage everybody to enable that option because of you know what we were talking about, how it really identifies more malware than APT for the, okay, so backing up to for devices that have ATP blocker, we see that the zero day percentage, the device, the malware that is caught by ATP blocker, is fifty three point one percent. So that's down a little bit, but that's still for those fireboxes catching more in by APT blocker than GAV, indicating that we have more zero day malware or malware that we haven't seen before, then regular basic malware even that GAV.
0: And to translate uh, that to, you know, that that basically means, uh, not to be a sales pitch, but if you're not using advanced malware protection, you're missing a lot. You know, we use Gateway Antivirus because it's useful and it's quick and it's part of our basic security package you can get with our Firebox. But the point is, if you're not using total security, which is where you get the additional malware protection like APT Blocker and others like Intelligent AV. You, 53% of the malware we saw got past Gateway Antivirus and is only catchable with APT Blocker or at least was during the time of this report. So you're missing potentially 53% of the malware if you're not using that particular service. And it translates the the same to, to other products too, if you happen not to be a WatchGuard customer, uh, other products that have signature based detection versus behavioral analysis or machine learning detection. If you really wanna catch most new malware, that, that 53% is kind of showing you how much you would miss other. Otherwise.
1: Absolutely. And on top of that, on top of the APT blocker that is missing 53 or that is catching the 53% and a basic GAV is missing that amount. Uh, another form that we're seeing is a TLS malware. The TLS malware is the encrypted malware that we see over an HTTPS connection. And this HTTPS connection is we're four devices that are actually able to scan it. So we're we're separating the fireboxes that are scanning the HTTPS traffic and devices that aren't. And in the malware that we see, it, we it's actually eighty-one percent over an encrypted connection. So for the fireboxes, meaning the fireboxes that are not scanning TLS malware, they're missing eighty-one percent of the malware. Now. This is this is the data that we see. So if you and turn on your Firebox to scan the encrypted malware, you know it may not be the same. But this is this is what we are seeing for the devices that are reporting.
0: I I think it's a good statistical. Now, what what Trevor's basically saying is, unfortunately, not many people turn on a free feature. It comes with every Firebox, whether or not you have our security packages, uh, HTTPS deep packet inspection, or the HTTPS application layer gateway. And the truth is almost all internet traffic is encrypted nowadays, legit or not legit. Like there are a few sites that still may use HTTP, but good guys make everything HTTPS because they want to protect people. But guess what? Bad guys love HTTPS too, because they know so many people either can't decrypt it or don't turn on this feature. So of the boxes that are decrypting it, when 80% of malware arrives over HTTPS, that means if you're not decrypting HTTPS, you're missing a lot of stuff. There's a good chance all the malware protection may not help you because you're not even applying it to most of the internet traffic that's encrypted. So the takeaway here is bad guys are, are doing more to evade security controls and encrypting sending malware over a secured web connection is one way they can hide themselves because they know legacy security controls can't deal with it. So like Trevor said, you should turn that sucker on. It's a free feature. takes a little bit of work, as we've talked about before. Well worth the effort.
1: Absolutely. And then, so the next point that we want to make here and, and for the malware section is that we are still seeing a lot of Office. If you've seen the previous reports, this is nothing new to actually, but we're continuing, especially in the widespread malware, which is malware that we see fireboxes, more fireboxes see the most of, is gonna be the Office documents. So that's something you have to watch out for. You gotta make sure that if somebody receives an Office document, whether over email or downloaded off the internet, they're making sure that you are scanning that traffic. Make sure you're scanning that file uh, before you open it up. And really, you shouldn't. What What do you think, Corey? You probably shouldn't allow macros. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, we'll, we'll talk about uh, some of the extra things because training your users on the handling of documents is very important. A lot of people realize executable things might be bad, but they still think documents are benign. So besides all the scanning uh, Trevor talked about, if you open a document and it asks you to enable macros, you probably shouldn't unless you talk to your finance and find out you need them. If you open it and it asks you to, uh, I forget exactly how they put it, but to add in- editing features or to enable, anything. That's a sure sign that it might be something you should avoid doing, especially if it comes from someone you don't know or in an email that seems suspicious. Gosh. The point being, it says it's a great threat vector for these bad guys because they know people tend to trust documents more. And that's why you make, make sure to train your users that documents can be dangerous, whether they're presentations, Word documents, spreadsheets, even rich text documents, as you know, from some of our past podcasts can trigger that's these cool. vulnerabilities.
1: And and yeah, so all of this information that we have and, and what we just covered, and it's going to be in our report. Um, one thing that I would like to highlight, though, is there is some interesting details in the report. Like I, one of my favorite jobs here is going over the malware and actually being able to play with the malware. You know, in a safe environment. I'm not. I'm not going to release it to WatchGuard. Don't worry, Corey. But I'm going to. Uh, I, I play with some. Some of the malware. And like one of the ones that I found is actually used to be used by uh, a group called Gothic Panda, which is a group that was another another
0: name we make fun of. I, I imagine the emo panda, you know, a really grumpy teenage panda wearing a lot of black, having some earrings and watching Absolutely. a lot of anime
1: that's that's pretty much I mean that, that's pretty much what we have on the report you, you got we got a little picture that I that I found there whether it's actually perfect but um, this is related uh, that was originally created or at least highlighted you know used by the group that is related to the Chinese Ministry of state security and
0: so a state-sponsored actor associated with China.
1: Yeah, apt3 is is another name that they have for for that group. And they are, uh, this, this has also been, so including the use by this panda, Gothic Panda, I mean and it's also and being you say used this panda because line.
0: by the way there's a ton of apt actors but there's different pandas out there that are all just code names for different state sponsored groups although many of them are chinese based but there's subgroups within china
1: <laughs> absolutely absolutely and and so yeah th- that group is using this uh malware that we actually caught um and then but the thing is it's, it's could be used, this is some of the stuff that we kind of make some assumptions on based on you know what we're able to understand, but it, it could still be used by this group, the Gothic Panda, or we're I'm also not. seeing it being used by a red line password stealer. Yeah, I'll so. ask
0: people to read the report to get the detail, but Trevor goes into a lot of detail, shares some of the scripts, some of the, the code snippets and things that different threats do. But that is one interesting thing about state-sponsored. You know, this this hash, these this malware sample is associated with, with uh, state-sponsored actors like that APT group. But the thing is, we also see a lot of these state-sponsored actors using the same exploit kits and malware tools that criminals do. So sometimes it's hard to know for sure if the state-sponsored group. Group is the one using it because we sometimes see the payloads that seem more like the criminal group, I think is what you're saying, right, Trevor? So Absolutely. it is definitely a, a threat that's being associated with the APT threat actor. But no, while those threat actors make their own stuff that can be very sophisticated, they're not afraid of using the same freely available stuff or even stuff that spreads around the underground too. So it's sometimes hard to enumerate them. So that's a great highlights of the malware section. I'm going to do double time to try to get to some of our special guests news by covering network attacks now. So just so you know, network attacks primarily cover our intrusion prevention service. So obviously, this is the service that's designed to catch any network based software exploit. A lot of people think mostly protecting your servers, but it protects your web clients too. A lot of exploits happen when a client visits a server. And so realize IPS is a two-way connection. The high level you know, highlights are again, network attacks like malware is down. The network attacks dropped about 10% quarter over quarter, just under 10% actually. And it's continuing kind of a, a downward trend since Q4 last year, which was one of our highs. So it's going down a little bit slowly compared to the high at the end of last year. Uh, However, it's also down year over year in this case too. So down 18% compared to Q2 of last year. On average, uh, a firebox blocked about 15 network, I'm sorry, 55 network attacks per appliance. So down doesn't mean there's not a lot of attacks that your firebox is blocking, but it just seems like the constant noise of mass scans might be down a little this quarter. Uh, also, interestingly, uh, we also do a regional view sometimes of our of all these different attacks, whether they be malware or network attacks. And APAC usually seems like the one that's less affected. But more recently, we've started kind of weighting this network attack by how many actual fireboxes are in the region. For instance, if we sell a lot of these devices in America, obviously it will look like America has the most attacks by volume. But when we we weight that by how many devices are actually in each region. APAC, which is the Asia Pacific, you know, Southeast Asia, Japan, Australia, New Zealand, were receiving almost 60%, so the lion's share of these network attacks, with the EMEA, I believe, coming in second. Uh, As far as the actual top 10 attacks, if you check out our report, we will share what the top 10 network attacks are. But to be honest, it wasn't that much different from the past. So rather than talk about all of them at the highest level, often these are web-based attacks. So they're attacks that happen to web applications or web clients. I, I would say like of the top 10, eight were things we saw last quarter, but there were a few new things. One of the most interesting things you should check out in the report is that SCADA, Supervisory Control and Data Acquisition Tool. There's a very specific, we name it in the report SCADA application that suffered from a relatively old, what's called a directory traversal flaw. That's when you have a web application or interface, obviously a visitor should only be able to get to the the files on that server associated with the actual web application. But a directory traversal flaw is when there's an issue that they can do something to escape the web directory they're supposed to be limited to to, and get to other directories on the system. So it's usually an information disclosure and sometimes a code execution flaw because they can get to directories where they they can either increase privilege or grab information they shouldn't have directly associated with the, the server and not just the web application in this case it was through a web administration interface of a SCADA product and by the way it wasn't the only directory traversal flaw there is a number of other IT products and different directory traversal flaws we saw throughout the quarter too so you know highlights are network attacks are down if you're a SCADA system make sure you don't expose web administrative interfaces online and definitely check out the report for more uh, the final section in the Firebox feed is something uh, that we is basically our DNS security. We have one of our products called DNS Watch that works both on a network and endpoint level, depending on which version you have. And it's called a DNS firewall. So as people click on sites, whether they're going to them on purpose or maybe they accidentally fell for a phish or a malware link, we rather than what you know, we take over DNS. So when the computer is looking for the actual uh, internet address to go to, Uh, if we know it's a bad site, we prevent the user from getting there and instead sinkhole them. And based on that, we get a lot of information for how many phishing domains, malware domains, uh, CNC domains, and also what we call compromised domains, which were legitimate domains that might've been hijacked to do bad stuff. And at the highest level, it's not worth going through all those lists. I think it's better to check out the report where we describe some of the top fish, you know, sites we see in all those lists. But do you know? We blocked about 5.7 million malicious domains from the fireboxes we're watching. Uh, it has also decreased about 25%, so it's going down, but there's still millions of domains we're blocking users from accidentally reaching. And there's some interesting legitimate sites that are being used for phishing. So I highly check um, uh, recommend you check out the report. Do you know, oh, go ahead. Did you uh, want to add something, I Trevor? Just,
1: just want to add real, really quick, you know, just, just about the, our, our DNS watch is that we are able to block the block applications, not just websites. And so even applications that are accessing, they still go through the DNS. They still act and by blocking we, that we, it we Web block
0: a- block applications, block. you mean, right? Like, like to, whether you call it a web application, if it's something you access over the web, like Dropbox is a program, an application, but it's all web-based. So that's what you mean by applications, right?
1: Any Yeah, any anything that'll make a DNS request, it's going to do that. Whereas, you know, versus other times where if you were only looking at like a URI, a uh, uh, oh, URL yeah, yeah URL then you know maybe you're not going to be able to catch every single one so that that's one of the benefits they, there. there's
0: there's pros and cons there like the benefit is that means that that's why we have a end a, a end point version of DNS watch you don't need a firebox to do this you can you know basically we have a client that will adjust your DNS service on your laptop to do this and the benefit is you can get this protection anywhere on the world on any device just by you know, we become your DNS server, essentially. The downside to it is it's less granular, right? And that's why the compromised sites are important. One thing that happens is a very legitimate site, like for instance, one specific URI, or in this case, it actually is a URL because it's a web, it's not just a file link or something, on SharePoint can be hijacked. What we see a lot in this report is SharePoint bad guys are setting up SharePoint uh, customer accounts and then putting bad stuff on their one public SharePoint link. Because when you're a Microsoft customer, you do get a SharePoint.com domain link for some of the stuff you control. The the problem with that is with something that's domain-based, we have to block the entire domain or subdomain in order to block it. So uh, DNS watch is good because it's ubiquitous. You can kind of put it anywhere, but if we have a compromised site, we can't kind of with DNS watch or with a DNS firewall, you can't point block just one URL of that site. Meanwhile, the other tool, WebLocker, WebLocker does a lot of similar stuff to DNS watch, right? WebLocker is a tool that as you're visiting sites, not just can we prevent you from going to non-productive sites, but we do have security um, categories and we can block you from going to the same insecure sites, but it does it to Trevor's point by URL. So that means if just one page on New York Times has like a forum comment page on New York Times as being compromised to serve something bad, we can block that one URL on New York Times without blocking every single New York Times URL, period. So a difference, slight difference, there's pros to doing it the URL way because you can do the, it doesn't have to be all or nothing, but DNS watches, I mean, the DNS firewall is great because you can It's just using DNS to provide the security. So it's really easy to put in a lot of places. Cool. Uh, Endpoint protection, I'm not going to cover too much. Do you know we have another malware section similar to Trevor's, but this is using our endpoint product. Uh, Do you know volume is down, but we're still seeing a lot of uh, interesting attacks. The one part of endpoint protection I'll cover is from an endpoint perspective, we do monitor the different vectors that malware gets in. And there are things like, Is it script-based malware? Is it something that's leveraging a flaw in Windows? Is it something that's leveraging a malicious Adobe Acrobat document or, or a flaw in a browser or in an Office file? Or is it maybe, I think we have a, a KMS, is it called version, Auto KMS, which is it, does it come because of Windows piracy tools online? So that it's very interesting to, to learn how the malware actually arrives because you can figure out how they're targeting Are they going after vulnerabilities in your browser, so just your users browsing, or is it something else? And the answer is, it is something else for the past three reports. Malicious scripts, especially PowerShell, accounts for, this quarter it was 81%, last quarter it was over 80%, or I'm sorry, this quarter it was 80%, last quarter it was over 81%. Malicious scripts are still the most common way malware gets in. You've heard us talk about living off land attacks with PowerShell. I believe that it's because these scripts are, are some of the evasive tactics, especially when they use living off the land tactics to evade normal security controls by using legitimate scripting language like PowerShell to make themselves harder to find. That said, of the other uh, vectors I talked about, like through uh, Acrobat or Adobe PDFs, browsers and Office documents, those three in particular, which have been low last quarter, did grow a little. So. You know, Trevor mentioned office documents continue to be a high threat from a network level. While it's not quite as bad as scripts from an endpoint level, office documents are rising as a vector too. The only last thing I'm not going to cover because I want to get to some takeaways for this report is we do have a, a security story of the month section. This time we went into a lot of technical detail about a threat that was called Folina. It is a Office document-based threat. So it was a new vulnerability affecting Word documents and and Office documents that attackers were using in actual live attacks uh, to get malware into systems. So Mark goes into detail on that story, how Felina worked from a very technical level. You should check it out if you want to know more about Office documents. But why don't we skip all the way to takeaways for time's sake, and the whole point of releasing this report, besides sharing the highlights with you, is to kind of have some security defenses that go with it. So one of the things from the report was the fact that uh, we saw some SCADA attacks, some attacks on supervisory control and data acquisition targets. And SCADA is the type of very critical system that like all uh, you know, industrial control systems in the past, if it's really critical, it should be somehow separated from the internet. You you might've heard the term air gap back in the days of critical systems. I think unfortunately the air gap is somewhat disappeared. It's not air anymore. You can still kind of segment operational technologies, but unfortunately I think uh, there's a benefit to networking that even smart electrical grids and other things get. So while the air gap has disappeared, one of our takeaways is you should be segmenting your network, especially if you're an industrial control uh, network. A SCADA system shouldn't be part of the normal business network where all your users are. It should be segmented from the business network. Mm -hmm. Furthermore, the actual operational technology the network, the network that has all the specialized equipment, if you're an industrial control system, should probably be segmented from SCADA with only limited access between to kind of add extra security. You've heard us talk about zero trust. This this kind of follows the zero trust segment. Even within your trusted organization, you have you should have gateways and segments of information where you can apply security controls between all those networks. Long story short, SCADA should never be directly connected to the internet. There should be something in between. And while I I used SCADA industrial control networks as a reason for doing segmentation. This segmentation and zero trust tip applies to every business out there. You may not have operational technology in SCADA, but you have something that's the most important keys to your kingdom. It could be your source code servers. It could be your active directory. So in the same way that industrial control folks put segments between these different critical networks, you should put segments between different trust levels of your network. Absolutely. Anything to add there, Trevor?
1: I, I, yeah, I think you got it uh, as far as a segmentation. You know, th- this is all part of a layer defense here. Absolutely. And, and part of this layer defense, it's a segmentation and then scanning the traffic and including scanning the traffic between areas of your network that are less trusted you know in the past they were called you know demilitarized dmz you know yeah um now we're talking about segmentation between each networks between scalda and between less trusted networks
0: and i would say today should even have many I mean the dmz was kind of giving a slightly public network from a not at all public network but nowadays you should have how you segment by trust should be more granular than it used to be with the old DMC. You can do it by department, you can do it by trust, but it makes the most sense by value of data. The most important stuff should be the most the stuff you want to segment for. You know, as 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 more and more people are allowed to access the data, you can have less protections and and but segment the trust stuff.
1: And ideally, the, the ultimately the goal is to have each each group of People on the network, each subnet, even to only be able to access the things that they are required. That that is the ultimate goal. Sometimes it's a little more practical today than others. But when you're talking about separating these networks, you want to be able to scan the traffic between these networks as well, so that we're not getting exploits being what's called using using steps to kind of grow inner and inner circles of these networks.
0: Yeah. It's not separation just for the separation to, to, uh, to sake. It's because there will be stuff you allow through those networks, but the goal is by putting a gateway there, by putting some segment not only can you limit what's allowed with access control lists, but to your point, all the services we talked about that protect you from malware, from network attacks, you have yet another gateway where you can apply that scanning that you're talking about, right? So it's Absolutely. not just scanning stuff from the internet, it's scanning between all these segments too.
1: Yep, and and by scanning by scanning these this traffic, you're able to separate these segments while still allowing those who need to access the services access. And part most of these services are going to be on TLS. The this type of encryption that we see that if you are our best practices for a company is all services are going to be on TLS. And so we want to be able to scan that traffic. And when we see uh, that 81% of our traffic uh, based on the feed data is going to be TLS traffic, uh, TLS, not TLS traffic, let me back that up, but the malware is gonna be encrypted. I'm sure our
0: audience knows this but TLS, Transport Layer Security, it's what's taken over from SSL and ba- basically anytime you encrypt web-based traffic, TLS is what's used and other types of traffic too. So TLS is just the, the default encryption we use for most web applications and other things.
1: Uh, th- yeah, thanks for that explanation. And, and the And so we definitely want to be able to scan that because what we're seeing is that if we're missing If we are not scanning the TLS traffic, then we're missing 81% of the malware. Correct, correct.
0: Uh, The last two tips I'll share really quickly is don't expose management interfaces for the love of goodness Gracious, don't expose management interfaces. This is also SCADA related, but when I talked about some of the network attacks, a lot of these directory traversal attacks, besides the SCADA interface, it was in other IT products and it was all in their web management interface. When you buy, when you have a software service nowadays, most of them are these web-based applications and the way you as an administrator manage them is through a special URL that gets you to the web administrative portal. And by web administrative, that means only administrators should be accessing that. There's, You might have to expose your website to the internet, but you do not want to expose the web administrative portal of any software, hardware product to the internet ever. Yes, remote management is something you need to do. There's lots of different ways, as you've heard us talk about before, like VPN with MFA and other techniques, where you can, much in a more limited fashion, still access these web administrative portals remotely. But the, the SCADA issue, the SCADA flaw we saw being attacked and all the other directory traversal attacks were in web administrative interfaces that never should be exposed to the internet in the first place. So don't do that. And the final tip, I think we've kind of covered it Trevor, but documents from an endpoint level, from a network level, from the story of the month with Folina, documents are definitely a vector bad guys are using as a way to trick your users into accidentally interacting with malicious content. You need to train your users, make sure your security awareness training has something specific, making sure people know, hey, documents aren't just text documents can be malicious. Uh, If you get them in email, if you get them over the web, as Trevor mentioned, whether they're from someone you don't know, you should definitely be skeptical and suspicious. But even if they appear to be from someone you know, but you never expected them, make sure they know that they should be suspicious of documents. If they weren't expecting it, they should verify before touching it. And if they do open that document, if it starts to ask for additional permissions or other things, whether that be macros or to enable editing or whatever, realize there's risk there. And maybe that's where you stop if you haven't already verified the document. So train on that. So that's the internet security report. Uh, Now let's go ahead and transition to a a abbreviated news section. But uh, before me and Trevor dive into a few news stories, last week we covered the Optus breach. And I mentioned that we might be able to get an Australian local to talk about the Optus breach. There have been some updates for that. So let's quickly cut to a interview I had with Dean Calvert talking about some additional news on the Optus breach. Uh, Last week we talked about the Optus data breach that affected a lot of uh, Australian customers. But we, of course, are just reporting on the news remotely. So we thought it would be fantastic to get a local cybersecurity and technology expert to join us and one of WatchGuard's partners. So I would love to introduce Dean Calvert. Hey, Dean. Nice to have you on the show.
2: G'day, Corey. Good to be with you and uh, welcome everybody else.
0: Yeah. So, Dean, can you tell us a little bit about uh, yourself? And of course, you're a partner of WatchGuard, so MSP and IT partner. We'd love to hear about Calvert Technologies
2: and you. Yeah. So we are a managed service provider based in Adelaide, South Australia, which if you look at a map of Australia and see the leg at the bottom, we're down just to the east of that. It's the wine capital of the world. And we've been looking after businesses throughout South Australia and the Northern Territory for the past 27 years. Well, sometimes it feels like one year, 27 times over, the way things have been changing. And uh, we've been a WatchGuard partner now for, I think, about six years. And it's been a, a really good relationship for us, too. So the, the technology is great and working with the people is great. And uh, getting to spend time with Pop Pop Corey every once in a while, too, is not too bad. <laughs>
0: yeah it kind of sucks that we're kind of on a video call instead of in person. I, I, I miss Australia and seeing you and others there. not to mention I mean this is kind of off topic and I'm going to say it wrong on purpose because I didn't know about the difference, but I've been kind of a fan from afar that you're you're a gyro cop, not not just a pilot which I want to be one day, but a gyrocopter or something else pilot. Tell me a bit about that.
2: Yeah, so I, I'm a gyroplane instructor. There's, I think, only 30 or 31 of us in the entire country, so it's a a pretty elite group, and a gyroplane looks like a helicopter, but it flies like an aeroplane. A gyrocopter, if you look up Igor Benson gyrocopter, you'll see what they are. It's almost like a chair with an engine behind it and a, a rotor wing above and that's a, a trademark for that particular product, whereas a gyroplane is the correct term. So they are very cool. And when you come down to Australia, uh, I'll be sure to take you up. But if anybody I wants to it. see some awesome photos and videos, just look up rotorsport, R-O-T-O-R sport.com.au. And if you're ever down in Adelaide, come for a fly. It's the most fun you can have.
0: Uh, it seems awesome. I t- I know some people might be nervous about that, but I would take you up on that in a second. I'm also an RC enthusiast, and there's a guy named Peter Schreiphol that I probably should have known gyroplane because I think he made a homemade RC version of a gyroplane, which actually took a lot. Of it. it took him a while. It, it has very interesting dynamics about you know how you have to design it to, to fly forward and up. Cool stuff. Well, let's get to Optus. Before we start, I'd love to like engage some of your local intelligence of what's going on in your local knowledge, but there have been a few quick updates since last week, so I just want to share them with the audience really quick. First, last week, we shared that we didn't, you know, Optus hadn't fully shared how many of the customers were affected when we first recorded our podcast, but since then, Of their approximate 9.9 million uh, active customers, they say there were 2.2 million affected accounts. So 7.7 million accounts weren't affected, but 2.2 million had some sort of personal number, like an ID, Medicare ID, personal ID, or PII stolen. Of that 2.2 million, uh, 1.2 million is actual active customers. But we did last week talk about the fact that they have expired non cust You know, there's customers that have left Optus. Apparently, 900,000 of those uh, those 2.2 million are not current Optus customers. Opt- customers, their expired users. So I find it interesting, Dean, because I do know that they're informing the 1.2 million customers that they know are affected directly. And I think you probably have laws that require that. But according to something Singtel released, which is they're the owner of Optus, apparently, you know, a Singaporean company, uh, they they haven't uh, confirmed how they're going to contact the expired customers, which were affected. Anyways, I I have other updates to share, but do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, You know, anything you've heard on your side or the difference between, you know, actively telling active customers, but how these non-active customers right now may be unprotected or not knowing if they're affected?
2: Yeah, look, there's been mixed. It's been one of the biggest stories in the news over here, other than the, the flooding hitting the eastern states and there's been mixed feedback from people I've heard from existing goptus customers that they've been complaining about the lack of communication so i think there's probably a measured difference in terms of what they are reporting and how much they're saying because it's an ongoing active investigation you know the Australian Federal Police are involved as well so I figure there's probably going to be some holding back of of information while they undergo the investigation but some of the frustrations are people having to line up for hours and hours to go to one of the service centres to get a new driver's licence or Medicare card or, or passport and they all contribute to your points of identification if you're opening up a bank account somewhere so you really want to protect that information and so there's a guy that I cycle with and he had to line up to get his driver's license replaced the other day and fortunately it didn't take him too long but there's certainly been complaints people calling in on the radio they've been having to line up for hours and hours and hours to deal with it I believe Optus have said that they will make good on making the, on paying for replacement passports and drivers licenses etc so there's no financial outlay for the people but there's still the inconvenience that's happening this is I think this is the biggest cybersecurity incident we've had in the country
0: oh wow And yeah, to your point, by the way, another update uh, this will probably be a big bill for Singtel and Optus. You know, right now, estimates, which I think they base the estimates mostly on, there's average costs per record lost. I think uh, in the US and Australia, it's anywhere from $110 to $150 is what you should expect your corporate loss per every personal record you lose of someone. So as you mentioned, the good news is Optus is doing the, the ID services, offering to pay for the ID protection services, offering to pay for passport replacements. But right now it sounds like people are estimating their breach bill. How much they have to pay for this breach might be $420 million. So definitely a big one. Uh, another, by the way, uh, Deloitte is leading their forensic review, so still an investigation. Maybe we'll learn more. One of the things that's interesting is in Singtel's statement, and, and one of the things Singtel said is they they said they claim it's still unclear how the uh, intrusion occurred this is weird to me because i think uh, uh we already know the api rumors and even the hacker themselves apparently has confirmed api was how it happened but you had a little more information or or, or things that are being spoken about about the api being potentially the root cause there can you tell us a bit about that
2: yeah so one of the the theories that we've had going around is that there was a test environment and so one of the capabilities, if you've got your phone and you want to know how much data you've used in the month, you can open up a little app on your phone and it will query an API and come back and say you've used, you know, fifty percent or sixty percent of your data. And it was that type of thing, I believe, where they went, they plugged in a, a phone number and it would return the customer information unauthor unauthenticated. And what apparently tripped them up is that they pulled out the data at a high rate. So they started plugging in more numbers and this data would come out. Maybe
0: in the attacker, maybe. Uh... Yes.
2: And and because they were doing this at such a high rate, pulling the data out, that's what actually signaled the the attack happening. Well, I don't even know if you'd call it an attack. It's more like a an intrusion attempt. And so it was because of that high data rate that they actually got tripped up and caught. So if they'd slowed down the amount of data that they were extracting, they may have been able to go on for a lot longer and get more data. Again, that's one of the stories. So as a test environment with the unauthenticated API, which just makes you shake your head. I mean, the second biggest telco in the country and they have this happening. It's just how does that happen these days?
0: yeah I, I I will say that one of the things you added just now that is new is we the security industry had already been talking about the API issue being potentially it and talking about it seemed very 101 Uh an authenticated thing connected to a database where just a mobile number gets you that information. But the test, I, I, the, the fact that the new bit of information as I didn't, maybe the test account accounts for why they hadn't put security controls in yet, but then you have to question why is this test, why are they using the test API so publicly? That's something that should be tested internally first. So definitely interesting. Uh, you know While we're talking about, uh, I'll give you my opinion, Dean, is I, I won't immediately judge a, a company, you know, a vendor, a big company for having a data breach. I believe it's it's not a matter of if it's when that every company one day will suffer an incident of some sort. It's not because they're not doing protection. And that, that doesn't mean you shouldn't do protection. It just means, you know, you won't plug every hole. So I won't immediately hate a company just because they had a cybersecurity incident, but I think how we judge them is one. How they handle it once they learn, how they are transparent with their customers, how they they take care of it after. And two, one of the reasons we look at root cause is there's some attacks that are sophisticated and you can understand why you, you know, maybe they didn't do perfect defense, but they did a lot of defense. And there's some attacks that you start to talk about negligence. You know, this is well almost like they weren't even trying.
2: What do well, you think? If you're going to start up a test environment, why not have dummy data behind it initially until exactly. you've actually gone through and locked everything down?
0: Yeah, and, and you could uh, access Listed to just uh, be accessible to people you're testing with. So a lot you could do. But it brings up one of the new things that came out in the article I read, which in one of, you know, Singtel and Optus are, are reacting to media for this. And then one of, I think it was actually a, a like, a, a, a earnings call where Singtel made a statement they're going to vigorously defend against class actions if, because of this Optus breach. And the comment in the article is like, you know, on your earnings call, talking about vigorously defending against class actions when you really should be talking about how you're going to help your customers, how you're going to solve the problem, make sure it's not doesn't happen again. So I guess what I'm getting at is those are probably most of the updates, but to your talking points, how do you feel Optus and Synctel are handling this? Or how does the Australian population, Is it? do you think it's a, a good example of like breach response? Or it sounds like some of the things you said, maybe the Australian, po- Australian population doesn't think so.
2: Yeah, look. The from what I've been hearing around from people is that they haven't been handling it well. That the communications not being great, and yeah, really it is. As you said, it's when things go wrong that's when you can show your true metal. So, you know, if you go to a restaurant and you and the meal gets wrong, it's how they actually address that and fix it for you that can be the difference between whether you go back there or not. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure officers will lose customers you. over this, and really, look, I understand that there'll be limits in what they can say because there's an ongoing active investigation with the Australian Federal Police. They they need to not only advise the customers of what they can, but they need to continue to investigate exactly how this happened and make sure it doesn't happen again. So, yes, there'll be limits in what they can say, but even coming out and saying look we're still working through this we don't have more information we can give you that you know we would like to just something like that would be would be beneficial particularly to the Optus customers i mean my son and his wife are caught up in this they're Optus customers i'm not sure if their data has been leaked as part of this it makes me realize i need to give them a call and check on them but yeah it's the communication feedback has been what i've been hearing from others that it hasn't been brilliant
0: yeah, that's interesting. One thing I would love to learn, like uh, we just talked about how they know 1.2 million of their active customers are affected, but they also know 7.7 aren't. And I you know, it's just relatively recently during this week we learned how many were actually affected. I I wonder if some companies, yes it's good that they're telling the 1.2 that you are affected, but I wonder if it would avoid confusion of also communicating to all the non-affected customers just so they get that confirmation, you know. Theoretically, you could say, if I haven't got an email from Optus, I'm probably not affected because they say they've communicated to the affected folks. But I think it's still nice for the non-affected people to get that email. Hey, we have found that you are not in that affected list so that, you know, maybe some of the confusion is they didn't get the email because they weren't affected, but they that may not be enough. They may be still wondering because of all the headlines. You mentioned the AFP, the Australian Federal Police. By the way, just for a practical tip, I do know one update this week is the Australian Federal Police have warned your citizenship that you know they are starting to see phishing and SMS attacks using this Optus information and Optus story as a kind of a lure to get people to do things. So be aware of that. But they seem to be you know just because i've uh, worked with some of the u.s authorities before it seems like government authorities at least for big breaches are getting more involved in investigation do you have any thoughts or or knowledge of how the afp and other australian authorities are doing in this breach
2: uh look no no real specifics but i do know that the the australians are very good when it comes to this sort of cyber activity if you recall the anom app that was being used for encrypted messages between criminals that was actually developed by the Australian Federal Police. So they are at the cutting edge of these sort of cyber incidents. Fortunately, I haven't had to look over my shoulder to worry about them following me around. If, if I see them, I just say, I know, pop, pop, Corey, and they leave me alone. It's all okay.
0: <laughs> they're probably following so, me around too.
2: <laughs> so, yeah, look, I think they're doing a good job, but it, there's only so much information that they can be giving out. And particularly, you mentioned about the class actions. There's, I'm aware of two law firms that are looking to bring up class action lawsuits against it. So probably with that in mind as well, the AFP will be buttoning down in terms of restricting the information that goes out until they're dead certain of everything.
0: One thing we do see in Five Eyes countries like Australia and others and us, of course, is I've noticed federal government not only actively working more with private companies in situations like this, but working with the Five Eyes with friendly nations. I, I hear at least that the AFP and the FBI are sharing information about this ed- breach. So, just knowing other you know authorities in other places are sharing threat intel to help find things. You know, we always have to question, you know, I, I, I think in any democracy, we want checks and balances around the power of federal authorities, not because we don't trust them, but because you never, <laughs> you don't want a dictator to suddenly be in office. Uh, but I, I think they've been doing a good job with private public communication lately. Uh, the, I think another question, while uh, I had, is while we're talking about practical tips, like watch out for phishing. One of the things we mentioned was, you know, something affected customers definitely should do is consider. This data is out there. That's usually used for opening accounts and other things. And things you can do are there's ID theft protection services, and I think uh, Optus will pay for some. And there's probably some Australian ones. But I, I know very well how credit freezes work in the U.S. And I actually here here we can do indefinite freezes, which is something I've kind of chosen to do because of how bad uh, data leaks have been lately. But how do you? What are some of the specifics about what you can do if you're an affected customer? Or to protect your identity knowing that these cards are out there in Australia.
2: Yeah, so there's three credit reporting agencies in Australia. I know one of them's called one of them is Equifax. I, I just don't Same remember as the US. name of the other yeah, two. Yeah. Yeah. But you only need to let one of them know about freezing your your credit capability and they will let the others know, but you've got 21 days. So you can't do an indefinite freeze. It's a 21-day hold and then it gets released. I believe there may be some special circumstances where you can extend it, but it would be a good idea if you are affected just to get in touch with one of the three credit reporting agencies, get them to put a hold on your ID until you can change your Medicare and driver's license, et cetera. One of the interesting things came out of this, all but two of the states in Australia have implemented additional security with driver's licenses. So you get a driver's license number and you have that for life, but on the back of the driver's license card, there's actually a card number, which only gets changed when you renew your driver's license. So if they've got the front number, that's not everything that you need in order to use your driver's license as ID for opening up a, you know bank accounts, et cetera, for credit cards, unless you happen to be in, I think it's Victoria and Queensland, where they haven't enacted that legislation to allow the use of this number on the back. So that may actually help change things for those states where they will realize that they need to step up the security for for just something as simple as a driver's license the the other thing i've noticed just a a little practical tip when i went and had a like a financial advisor help with some setting up some superannuation which for you guys is a 401k and he wanted to take photographs of id for the purposes of setting things up and i just went "Uh, no if you're going to use your phone to take photos of my id how do I know that you're not going to get hacked? So what I did is I provided him with, with the a secure link to download those images rather oh, than going smart. to his phone. That's
0: That's excellent. Yeah. So that's yeah, just yeah. a
2: tip. If you're going somewhere, going to a hotel and they want to get a copy of your driver's license or passport, you say, well, what are you going to do with it and how are you going to store it? Um, you've got to be vigilant about those sorts of things.
0: I think it's solved for passports. This is kind of an aside, but to your point, I, I think here in the U.S., it's social security numbers, which have nothing digital. They're still these paper cards you can easily use in just a number. Uh, And driver's licenses and passports are are big pieces of ID that are often used to confirm your identity, which means people can often open accounts if they have that information. Mm -hmm. Uh, But uh, here in the US for passports, it's probably the same in Australia for passports. The good news is it's no longer just the number. They have what they call biometric ones, which actually have a little chip in there. So you have a private digital certificate attached to you which you know i know there's some people that worry about shipping babies and that's not what we want to do this isn't what do they call it the sign of the devil or whatever we're not shipping babies but having that digital certificate in ship be part of a passport but hopefully extending that to things like driver's license to medicare cards to social security numbers if we continue to use them in the u.s Obviously the human readable number is easy to leak and has leaked too much. And the way it is today, I would never use it as a social security number or a driver's license without a chip as a, a form of ID, because how can you? That can be stolen and copied. But if you actually have a digital chip that's assigned, you know, basically it's it's a private public key crypto that they use to support this, then you have your own private key and it's not as easily stolen. So hopefully all nations will start to add some digital certificates, digital keys, private keys to all of their forms of identification.
2: Mm. New South Wales implemented a digital driver's license and so on your phone it's uh, there are particular things that you can show up to use that as identity as uh, identification confirmation but it's digital and so I think that's something that we should have. You know, and it sounds like
0: maybe those two to two. two uh... Locations in Australia do have that, which is great. Well, I guess a uh, great update. It's awesome to have a local uh, perspective. Before we drop off and let you have your day back, Dean, is there anything we missed or anything you'd want to add about the Optus breach or, or anything else?
2: No, well, I guess it just goes to show that you know the, the the big organizations can be just as badly affected as small organizations. One of the things that I have conversations with customers and prospects where they're you know small business. And they go, well, I'm only a small business. Why would they come after me? I haven't got anything that they would value. And I just shake my head and I just say, it's you value your data. They value your money. And so they're betting the fact that if they can block you from accessing your data or threaten to leak it, they're betting on the fact that you will pay money to stop it leaking or to get access back to it. And really, that's the mindset to take. It's not that you know, you've got data they want, you, you've you got the money, that's what they want. So yeah. everybody is at risk and everyone needs to remain- M- vigilant
0: Money or a resource. I would even add to that, that we're finding beyond the fact that even if you're a small company and they don't care about your company, they can just ransom you for some value. The other thing is that I think people forget this digital supply chain we all live in. There's no company, big or small, that doesn't have connection to other companies, whether we buy or render services from others, bring contractors in. One day we may learn that this Optus API was something done by a third party contractor or something, you know what I mean? So you may be a tiny, small, I don't know, five person development house doing contract API work for big companies. And you end up being the one that causes, and uh, you know, by the way, I'm not saying that's the case for this, but it's, it's another example of why the size of your company doesn't matter. You, you offer value and resource to any attacker just based on having money and having any computing resource. Plus, maybe they don't care about you directly, but if you work with any partners that they do care about, you may be the one they target in order to get into a partner too. So I'm with you, SMBs, uh, small businesses are equally, I would almost say they're bigger targets nowadays because I believe the attackers have realized they tend to be the lower hanging fruit.
2: Yeah, easy to get. And also just you know, with your family, if you've got older people in your family, people even older than you, Corey, and they get targeted. <laughs> and so you know, you're going to have people's parents and grandparents, they'll be targeted. They may get text messages or emails just to say that they've been caught up in it, even if they're not a you know, in this case, an optus customer, yeah. but if there's someone else, they get confused and they can, they can fall for these things. So, you know, if you're out there, you're talking to family and friends, just make them aware, don't fall for these things, be that crack in the record repeating it time. And again, I've put it into my parents and my in-laws and an extended family, if in doubt, check with me. Yeah. And I'm, I'm always happy when they do check with me about these things. So yeah, remain vigilant about that too.
0: Couldn't agree more. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Dean. Uh, Thank you for uh, starting your day on Thursday. It's so weird I'm talking to you in the future right now, but I guess I'm used to that. (laughs) But uh, thank you so much for joining us.
2: My pleasure. Thanks, Corey.
0: So that was a great segment with Dean. But guess what? I recorded that yesterday, and there's been yet another Optus update that I really quickly want to share before Trevor and I jump into a couple other stories. So, since me and Dean talked, news came out today that the AFP, that's the Australian Federal Police, arrested a 19 year old uh, in association with this Optus breach. Now, this 19-year-old is not the person that did the breach, not the original attacker who first leaked the data. But as it turns out, this 19-year-old was someone that took the 10,000 files we mentioned that were leaked. They used the contents and phone numbers uh, and contents, private information of those files. He started sending SMS fishes, fishes which is called smishing, to the actual victims themselves, extorting them that he would leak their data to everyone if they didn't pay about 2,000 Australian dollars. So this is just some kid that was taking advantage of the leaked data to try to, to uh, extort other folks. Good news is the Australian police have arrested him. He's being charged with a telecommunication uh, issue. It's basically uh, using telecommunication uh, networks with intent to blackmail is illegal with uh, penalties up to 10 years in prison. And they have private or personal information or PII handling laws that basically is in violation of how you have to handle people's personally identifiable information within that particular law is punishable up to seven years. So, You might have remembered Dean and I mentioned you should be on the lookout for phishing and SMS messages taking advantage of this. This is why this kid was caught doing just that. Uh, Good news that they caught them. Uh, So happy about that. But the only additional takeaway we want to add to that story is keep your eye out for more phishing SMS. That data is out there. Bad guys are going to leverage this to try to get more from their victims.
1: And and you know. You know, Corey, I, I just wanted to add one one quick point. The way that they caught him was he actually decided to create a bank account and have and pointed people to that bank account. And this guy's I, obsec it, it was silly like-
0: in a day of cryptocurrency. When uh, how bad guys can extort people is pretty hard. This this teenager, <laughs> wow, not very, obsec by the way, is operational security. It means he made a very stupid mistake that easily got him caught. Uh, by the way. Also, stupid idea to do. I mean, uh, he got these 10K records from a well-known underground we know, and even that underground decided to remove the records and didn't want to touch it because it knew the authorities would be all over it. So just the idea that he was going to do something that was already a big story that authorities were all over, kind of a silly, silly move by him. So happy they caught him. That said, Trevor, let's go go on to two quick stories that I do want to cover. Uh, One, we did not cover last week because we record uh, at a certain time the week before, uh, but this actually happened the week we record. So it's something that could have been in last year's podcast, but we missed the story because it just came out at the end. And the story I'm talking about is an exchange, a set of exchange vulnerabilities that is colloquially known as Proxy Not Shell. You might have heard this by now, but uh, at the end two weeks ago, last Friday, uh, news of uh, zero-day exchange vulnerabilities came to light. I think it was because an Asia-Pacific security researcher released it and then Microsoft came out with a, a quick warning about it as well. At the highest level, uh, the researcher found two new zero-day, that means unpatched by Microsoft, vulnerabilities that affected primarily on-premise Exchange servers. And the two vulnerabilities, one's called a server-side request forgery. Not going to go into detail on, on this shorter uh, news story to, uh, of what that is, but is very similar to, you know, client-side request forgeries and, and cross sites. It's a way to to be able to spoof as though uh, spoof a response as though you are the server back to a client, but it, that flaw combined with another remote code execution type flaw that an authenticated attacker, someone that had an account of some sort, didn't have to be privileged, but had an account on the exchange server, could basically combine these flaws to execute code on your on your exchange server. And what these threat actors, this was a live attack. This was found happening in the wild by live attackers. What they were doing with this was installing web shells uh, and then often installing DLLs with those web shells that they could then ex- uh, execute in memory of the exchange server to gain full control of the exchange server and do other bad stuff. So you might remember an old exchange attack called proxy shell. It is very similar in concept, but they call it proxy Shell because it's different. Uh, as I mentioned, it's being exploited in the wild. It seems to be state-sponsored attackers. So it's being exploited in a limited fashion, uh, And uh, but it is by the most sophisticated attackers out there. So something to watch out for. Uh, I feel that, like there's a little good news here and that it requires authentication, which mitigates it a little, but I think you all know how easy credential theft has been lately. So uh, when state-sponsored attackers can get credentials so quickly and easily, this the, it is a big deal uh, if, if uh, someone does have authentication on your Exchange server does not uh, affect the cloud. If you're fully cloud M365 and Outlook and Exchange, you're fine. But I would say a lot of bigger organizations still have on-premise servers. There's a hybrid mode that includes uh, on-premise servers. You would still be affected. And by the way, there is no patch for this. So the second part of the story is the warning, what should you do about this? Uh, Do you know Microsoft has published a mitigation for this when it first came out? Uh, The mitigation was this kind of, what they call a URL rewrite instruction. So a special instruction you could do that I think Trevor might talk a little about, about in a second. But beyond making sure that it closed down the PowerShell ports necessary for some of this attack to work, it basically was was changing something. It was rewriting a URL that might have been a maliciously crafted URL so that it should have defanged this. Now, unfortunately, a few days later this week, actually, researchers, including Kevin Beaumont, who some of you may know, found that there was easy ways to bypass Microsoft's original mitigation. Uh, by the way, did you have something on that, Trevor? Yeah
1: yeah, I, I can go really quick on this. The I looked a little bit on this mitigation process and originally it was just of simp- a, a very simple one line your, uh, your, uh, rule that you can implement in exchange. that is a request URI rule that you know basically deny this. Well, they were able to figure out a way around it and by base by doing some URL encoding, uh, and that's, I believe, what uh, Kevin Beaumont found. And so they, Bur- Beaumont, uh, and he, and so basically, they, they, changed the, they changed this in just the last two, three days, I believe. And so we want to, so make sure that you have the latest uh, mitigation strategy from, from Microsoft on this. But what's interesting is it uses a name that I've seen before, uh, auto discover. And so the exchange auto discover process is works by allowing uh, by allowing clients to auto discover the domains that they are on. It's not the most you know. Imagine that it's not the most secure. And so it uses it uses auto discover and exploits it in some manner. That unfortunately, I wish I had more details, but it exploits it in some manner, and it runs Maybe allows a PowerShell script to run, so that that was mm-hmm. I thought was interesting as far as the mitigation process that they used. You can sometimes tell about how the exploit works.
0: And it's interesting. I mean, like you said, the mitigation was essentially looking for all the Webster like Exchange Outlook Exchange. Be, be, besides being the email server is a web server because that's how outlook web access works and how a lot of stuff works nowadays so I, the url rewrite rule is basically looking uh, web servers just get lots of little posts to them with urls with parameters and them asking them to do something whether it's a post or a get And these rules just kind of, hey, I want to look for a a pattern that I know is this bad guy doing something, and I'm just going to block that pattern. But I, I found it interesting that HTML encoding, the side effect of that is there's a hundred encoding methods allow you to write HTML, write URIs in all kinds of different ways or encode data in lots of different ways. So if your pattern is just looking for one simple way to do things and it doesn't take into account different ways you can encode syntax, you can. You can say the same thing in a parameter, but it's encoded in a different way that doesn't make the same pattern. It's pretty easy to bypass rules. So I'm glad that researchers caught it. I'm glad that Microsoft updated mitigations. Before we get into, I, I think you know some of the mitigations, but how severe do you really think this is, Trevor? I mean, I, I think it's a it's a big deal vulnerability, but the authentication part of it, uh, should most people be worried about that if they're doing any authentication security?
1: Well, so if if you have Exchange exposed, which a lot of a lot of groups do, you know, a lot of times uh, it's very difficult to actually have an on-premise Exchange server that doesn't uh, have access to their internet internet on
0: uh, at least on the there. ports that you require. I mean, you definitely need port twenty five, but you might also need some of these AP other ports that Exchange uses for things like Outlook Web Access and. Yeah, I bet even integrations require those PowerShell ports sometimes.
1: Yeah. And so then so then basically it part of this exploit allows you any user to run a PowerShell command. You don't need and the mitigation for this, by the way, is to only allow admins to run PowerShell. And so currently it appears that any user who has login is able to exploit Use this exploit to run PowerShell commands. So you're relying on anybody that has run PowerShell commands
0: access. with privilege higher than them, even right? Right. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. That, yeah. And, and and so basically, you're you're saying that you want to make sure that any user who has access to your Exchange, whether it's a an admin or a regular user, is going to make sure that they uh, have a good password policy. And as much as I would love to hear that everybody uses a password manager and uses twenty four character long passwords on every single little thing they use, it's just not the case. And so um a random twenty four character password' be even and better so <laughs> that would be better. But the the problem is is that's not the case. So
0: unless you have the password manager, that's why you should use it that's the only time a human could actually keep up with that crap
1: exactly and so yeah as far as the, the authentication requirements, there is a small uh, but just a small step okay. uh, as far as authentication
0: in other words it's severely it's a severely critical vulnerability if someone can get a, a can get a valid credential or authentication. To, to an account that's on your exchange server. I will say besides the password manager, if you, all your users have good password security, you all, you do make it harder for them to be authenticated. MFA though works too. make, make sure, even if uh, some state sponsored actor is able to sneak a credential from someone, if you have multi-factor authentication, that's another roadblock you can put in front of them. But really, You wanna fix this, so what are the real takeaways? Well, if you hadn't heard about the fact that their original mitigation doesn't quite work, make sure to see Microsoft's latest release, which has updated mitigation steps. That will not fix the problem entirely. That should just prevent it from being exploited, hopefully. So the bigger tip is when this comes out on Monday, I believe Patch Tuesday will be the following day. Pay close attention to Patch Tuesday. They haven't said exactly when the patch will come out, but they have said they accelerated it. So I kind of expect the patch to be tomorrow. If it's not tomorrow, I expect them to actually probably do an out-of-cycle patch, but keep track of this and patch it the second Microsoft releases it so that was one of the stories uh the other story which i might cover again with mark too but in a a few podcasts ago uh and and in many podcasts before this we've been covering uh basically the drama around an old uber breach i believe it was all the way back in 2014 i might have covered in one of my weekly security uh reviews that i used to do on youtube uber suffered a a, basically a breach that had access uh, that gave people access to a lot of uh, Uber customer data. Uh, but we didn't learn about the breach in 2014. We learned about it years later uh, because Uber as an organization did not release detail about it. And it was because uh, apparently the CSO was being blamed for the cover-up. The CSO uh, was accused of keeping this breach from lower Uber employees. It's still unclear to me if other executives, other C-level executives, knew or not. I do not know, and I I, I've only read the ruling on the case so far. I haven't been able to follow the four-week case that trial that has been happening the past four weeks. But long story short, if you heard us talk about. Whether the CSO should be the one accountable, definitely if he did it, if, if the CSO covered it up all by himself, he definitely should be accountable. But I had some questions if other executives knew. But despite my questions, a federal jury found Joe Sullivan, the ex-CSO of Uber. And of course, by the way, before Uber, he was also a prosecutor for the Department of Justice. He was a CSO for Facebook and Cloudflare. Very well-known security person. He was found guilty of two felonies after the four-week trial that just happened. And these felonies have criminal charges. So this does uh, mark the first time a CSO or CSO has directly faced criminal charges over lack of incident response for an organization. Uh, The jury found them guilty of both obstruction, This was a charge against the FTC that uh, they claimed that them covering it up prevented the FTC from being able to investigate this breach because they didn't even know about it. And also the the weird word me and Mark talked about before, misprision, misprision. Uh, it's hard for me to pronounce that word. It's like prison and "mist" per- together. But misprision essentially means the deliberate concealment of one's knowledge of either a treasonable act or a felony. So he was hiding a felony. Now, by the way, there was at least one other person that knew of this. Uh, An attorney at the company also knew of this attack. So uh, apparently the attorney helped uh, do the payment. You remember in the last podcast, besides covering this up, this particular CSO also paid the hackers because they were extorting the company. And he set up a bug bounty system to have an excuse to try to pay them, but the attorney helped to transfer cryptocurrency and and pay them. The attorney, while they obviously knew, they, they had immunity and testified against Sullivan, so really the CSO was the only person held accountable uh, sentencing hasn't happened for this, uh, for these charges, uh, Sullivan can face uh, anywhere from eight years in prison and have up to half a million in fines. So that's a big deal. So I I guess the, the talking points is it's definitely clear. Sullivan is couple is in part culpable to this for sure. I mean, he's, he's definitely ruled guilty by a jury of peers. They, he did do a cover up to normal employees, but, uh, what what do you think about this, Trevor? One of the things Mark and I talked about is I am not 100% sure if it was him covering it up alone or if at the time the other executives at Uber also knew. And the reason that was relevant to me just before you share your, your, your thoughts on it is even though a CSO is in charge of security, if my CEO and group of executives disagree with how I'm going to handle something, Ultimately, I'm not in charge. You know, the CEO has last word in all things. So there is something I can do as a CSO if I think it's totally wrong. I can I can, you know, resign. But my my worry is that other C levels knew. And if other C levels know, should only the CSO be accountable. Do, do you have any thoughts on the ruling or any of that, Trevor?
1: Yeah, no, I I think I would agree with you. I, I you know, going into the story at, at the beginning. I read it as it could have been just the CSO talking with somebody who was who found an exploit trying to look for money and you know I, I think we've seen that before where they're coming in and they're like, hey here's a here's an exploit that I found give us more money you know and but, as you look into it more that's just simply that's not, not the case,
0: case. no the, they see it. either way the cso was he is involved in a cover up no matter what so i agree yeah. with you this is a cover up no matter how you look at it
1: and yeah so so in this case here it's pretty clear and and i think this guy of, of anybody first being the fact that he should know he he's a cso and he has previous experience as like a prosecuting attorney and he's so you should have known better. I don't Absolutely. think that we have to worry about anything. We're not planning on covering anything any big scandal up. Um, so so as far as like the the judgment that's sent down to him, uh those those rulings, so you know, we don't know the sensing, so those rulings look correct. Um you know, the the as far as it does appear that he was maybe the primary uh one responsible that Sullivan is the primary responsible for this issue for the cover-up, um, but you know, lo- like you were saying, there may have been some communications with the previous CEO at Uber. But uh, well, that's what I—that's you know, what we don't
0: ahead. know. And I think my only argument is I actually am not opposed at the CSO being culpable and having some uh, punishment because whether or not he was the only person in the leadership team who knew, he he took part in it. He he led it and he didn't put his foot down and say no. Uh, so I, I think him being charged with something is definitely okay. And it should be him. Let, let's say him. he knew, we know one attorney knew, and it may even be possible people on his team knew. But the attorney and the people on his team is technically below him. He is the highest person, the highest ranking executive at the company. So f- among those people, he is the one in charge, the one that's accountable. My only worry, again, is that I, I – and and he should be charged no matter what because he took part in the action. But I'm questioning – I just want to know as a person, did he tell the executives? Do all the executives know he was covering up? Did all the executives – And because there's, I just know CSOs, there's stories there where security folks want to do some stuff, but they get overruled by other executives. And if it's not anything illegal, that's fine. That's the way companies work. Your CEO is always the boss, no matter what your role is. You weigh in on your expertise, but at the end of the day, the CEO and the board make decisions when there's conflict between, you know, when when different leaders have different opinions. He is ultimately responsible, but I want I want to know if other executives knew and, and actually participated in this being their response rather than what should have been a pretty simple transparent response. Companies get breaches. I you know while customers don't like it, I think it's pretty obvious that if you transparently, openly you know, share a breach, you do your your due diligence to protect your customers from the data that, that was lost, and you show that you're willing to fix the problem, these breaches, there's no reason to cover them up because you can actually increase your security and have a good customer experience by fixing the problem. And I think, yeah, so I, I just, I, I'm not upset that he got held to account. I just wonder if other C-levels, if they knew too, I feel like other C-levels should have been held to account as well.
1: Yeah. And and I think I think you're right to suspect that there were some other C-levels. The the issue, I
0: I don't know, Trevor, it just seems unusual that they wouldn't know. Maybe that's me as a CISO myself. Like I would never if I knew of a breach, the first thing I do is besides starting an investigation the proper way is inform others. So it's just surprise if it literally was just him and the lawyer, he is clearly the one. Yeah. Uh, but if, so, if other sea levels knew, I think that others should be held accountable too.
1: So during that time that the ex, that the breach happened, the Uber was already under some type of investigation by the FBI for a previous breach, and so I, it sounds to me like that that's the reason that they were trying to hide it. And I also read that you know to to your point, I also read that the CSO, CEO. CSO was uh, asked if he would roll on, you know, or or basically give up the information to uh, give the prosecution chance to prosecute the previous CEO. And so, we um, uh-huh. don't know all the details, yeah. but it does look like there was something there.
0: By the way, that's that's the interesting part. But do you know the new CEO of Uber, the one that I think is still, he definitely didn't know because during this period of time when this happened that a new CEO and some other executive team came in and it was actually the new CEO that pushed to do the right thing. It was the new CEO that let go of Sullivan. So, so, but yes, you're exactly right. It's the leadership that was with Sullivan during the breach that, that I'm curious how much they knew and not, not the staff, not the staff that didn't know, not even the attorney that knew, but was not, you know, he's not a decision maker, the company, you know, he's not an executive, so he's not responsible for the decision, but if that ex-CEO, the one before the new guy that took over and started writing some of this stuff, I just want to know what he knew, but Either way, I think the one thing we can agree, that's still not an excuse for the CEO. I mean, the takeaway if you're a C level out there in security, do you need to worry about this now that they're prosecuting CSOs? I don't think so, because most of you are going to do the right thing, right? I mean, I if if a customer data gets lost we have laws that have mandatory data breach disclosure and personally I'm going to follow all the laws as a CSO and more importantly I want to transparently communicate when I need to protect my customers when you lose customer data you're not just me coping oh I got breached too bad you've you've put your customers at risk there's now something out there that if the customer doesn't know anything about it they may not be able to take actions like ID theft protection or freezing their credit that could protect them from other attacks. So if you're a CSO that does the right thing, you shouldn't have to worry about this. That said, as a CSO, you probably know that when you're dealing with other executives, when you have to make really hard decisions during security offense, people will have different opinions. And at the end of the day, you may not be the ultimate decision maker. So the one thing a CSO or CISO should remember from this incident is you could be held liable. So if you're if anyone else in your executives if you want to do something but folks that are above you are saying no, we're going to do it this way. I mean, if they're the leaders that has to happen, but I think your only choice is to resign. You have to stand up for the the lawful legal way to do things. Otherwise, you could be the one holding the bag when there's criminal charges. So that to me is the takeaway. Uh, to hopefully most CSOs don't even worry about it because uh, we're trying to protect against breaches, but in the worst case, if they happen, we would, we would do all the right things to take care of them. But if you're ever at conflict with other leadership, if it comes down to it, remember this incident as an example. Uh, one, it's a, a case you can say for why you convince other leadership not to, to cover things up. But more importantly, if it ever gets forced by, by whoever, you might have to leave the company, and it probably isn't your best interest in that case. So anyways, interesting case. I'm sure as the first CSO being uh, guilty for a criminal charge, I think we'll hear a lot more about it in the news. So thanks again, everyone, for listening. As always, if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. If you have any questions on today's topics or suggestions for future episode topics, you can reach out to us on Twitter. Uh, You can find me as at SecAdapt, and you can also find Mark when he's around as XORRO underscore, or Zorro. Uh, Trevor, any place people can reach you, or are you less a Twitter person?
1: Not not so much Twitter person. Uh, it's going to be, you can, you can email me.
0: Well, in <laughs> either you can case, mail. you can reach all of our podcast team, uh, both me and Mark, and even we can forward stuff to Trevor at the hashtag the443podcast. Thanks again for listening, and you'll hear from us next week.